Welcome to another VW podcast. This is part of our Office Hours Preparing for Funding series. I'm Kevin. With me today, as always, is Radney. Hey, Radney. Hey, Kev. How you doing? Doing great, man. Today, we're going to continue our discussion on preparing for funding. What I wanted to talk about today, Radney, was different types of investors and where to find them. Rad, do you ever get guys coming to your office, startups coming to your office, and then they ask you if you can help them to find money or to raise money? You ever get that? Yeah, I had a call earlier today where they didn't ask specifically like that, although there was dancing around it of like, hey, can you make some introductions, right? So that's a pretty typical experience. How do you handle that? So this is not a client, right? This was a... This actually existing client that okay, we, existing you know, client. we've done just a little bit of work for them and they're like coming back and saying, hey, now we're going to raise this round. And they're not someone that we do a lot of day-to-day work with that I know super well. And so I said, look, we're happy to make introductions where we see that they make sense. But I will say that in the course of my career, having made the introductions, maybe 5% of the time, it actually turns into something and I might be being generous. I said, really what works is it's just a numbers game. You got to get out there. You got to talk to as many people as possible. And it's really about you developing the relationship. Very clearly, I said, look, we're the attorneys. We're here to negotiate the deal for you. We're not broker dealers. When we do make introductions, we do it out of the goodness of our heart. We're not like charging you for right. time or effort or anything. I'll make the introduction. I'll, but I really think it doesn't make a ton of sense for me to just blast my whole network. It really, that's not what we're doing here. Yeah, I do get that offer probably a couple of times a year. It says, I'll pay you a finder's fee, right? Which would be illegal in most instances. You can have finder's fees, but they're pretty complicated. But yeah, that's just not what we do. We've never done that. We never will. This person, that the company that talked to you today, Rad, what stage are they in? Is this their first raise? Is this like a friends and family? or a This would be their first raise, although they're one of these ones, Kev, where they cash flowed early and they have an operating business and they're actually EBITDA over a million dollars a year. So they're looking to raise a decent amount of money and at a decent valuation. So they're, they just were in an industry where they didn't need capital early on to, sure. to get to cash flow positive. Well, that sounds like a real business. I would like to make introductions for that one because <laughs> most... Most of the others that I'm getting asked to make introductions for are not, they're just a hope and a prayer. Yeah. You're right. I like to tell when these people come in with these really, really early stage companies, and they're looking for their first investors. I like to tell them, look, if you can't raise a hundred grand on your own, then you're never going to be able to go raise money. And it's a big number. I get it. But if you can't convince your aunt or your old fraternity brother who's really successful or your boss or whoever, wherever you're leaving from, whatever, your good contacts. To come in and invest, then you don't have a bona fide idea. I think there's this misnomer out there that there's just these angel investors out there who are just going to invest into any idea because <laughs> it's a startup and you don't have to have a great idea or you don't have to have it well vetted or you don't have to have any initial seed capital and they're just going to invest. That's just not how it works. I mean, the reason why angel investors can invest money is because they've been very successful <laughs> in their yeah. career to date and they have disposable cash that they can now invest. So they're going to be thoughtful and particular and analytical about making a decision, about making an investment decision. But I like to tell very young founders, look, I realize you might not have had a lot of time to build a war chest. So if a 23-year-old kid's putting in 15 grand, that's equivalent to a 30-year-old putting in 50 or a 40-year-old putting in 100, right? Of their own money yeah. in my mind. And that's been pretty consistent for as long as we've been doing venture law. Ready, but I think most friends and family rounds, you got to be able to do that on your own. I mean, maybe you get into an accelerator or something and that kind of jumpstarts it, but 
really, if you can't find some money in your own network. Yeah. And it's tough, right? Because we have clients that go back to the thought about whether it's a good idea or not. Founders tend to fall in love with their ideas and not the hard work that comes after. But some of them do fall in love with the hard work that comes after, which makes your company a success. But the difference between those who do have that network and the ones that don't can be quite dramatic, right? You know, I have many clients that worked really hard and had great ideas and great work ethic and they gave it a shot for a year or two years, whatever, but they don't have a rich uncle or a fraternity brother, right? And so that's kind of maybe the part of funding that we're still trying to tackle, right? And we have work with organizations here in Austin and Dallas that we try to help out with that too, right? That first check for a lot of underrepresented communities and a lot of minorities, female founders stuff, folks that actually, when we get into the numbers, and obviously this is for a different podcast day maybe, but like tend to be as successful, not more successful than the founders that get that are getting the funding. But you're right. You know, the ones, Kev, that I've seen that do have that network. And if you do work hard and you're able to bring that much money in, yeah, you're probably going to make it to that next level. And you're going to get some investors that are interested. There's a point there that I think it's the hustle to find the funding is indicative of the hustle you need to be successful. Hmm. And you know, building a startup, it's step by step. Step one, do I have the hustle to pull together either the initial team or to find a venture attorney and get my legal foundation set. Step two, do I have the hustle to get a wireframe done or get my MVP done or my beta done, whatever. Step three, do I have the hustle to go pull together 50 or 100 grand? And like you said, Rod, yes, you're right. It would be ignorant for me to say that everyone has someone in their network that can write a $25,000 check. That's certainly not the case. And unfortunately, it's Mostly people who come from underrepresented socioeconomic classes or women who have those troubles. But then you have the hustle to go find the right accelerator or a grant program or an incubator or a fund that is targeting a certain type of founder because they are out there. You know, Rad, we're really proud to partner with Div Inc. in Austin and Div Inc. does a lot of this. And then you get that $25,000 check from someone like Div Inc. And then that can lead, that can have a snowball effect right? To go out to other investors and stuff. So that's all part of the hustle. And I believe so much that pulling that together is so indicative of your ability to do a startup because there's really no roadmap for you to get from where you are now, your idea to success. It's not a linear path. Mm -hmm. And even though it could be so similar, idea could be so similar to something that's happened in the past, it's just not going to be the same path as whatever the other company took. But the only, and all the years we've been doing this, Rad, the only thing that I have seen that like binds everything together is hard work. Right? Yep. You take resources, you take education, you take pedigree, you take money. Like, without hard work, none of that's going to happen. And hard work can bring all of those other things in. Yeah, I agree, Kev. At the end of the day, starting a business is very difficult. And so all of those factors that you outlay, the pedigree, the education, the financing, you do need that hard work to kind of bring it all together. And you know what? For those out there that had it and still didn't make it, that doesn't mean you didn't work hard enough. Like sometimes the market isn't there. Sometimes the idea wasn't it. But really, continually doing this, continually creating companies and trying again and trying and trying, you get better at it, right? And then your network is expanded the next time you do it. And so it's that old adage of just like actually being in the arena, actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. You get better at it by doing that, not by sitting on the sidelines. So just because you didn't make it doesn't mean that you didn't work hard. But those that do make it definitely did work hard. Right. All right, Radney. So let's talk about different types of investors. So when you go out to raise capital, 
once you get into this, you will notice that there's a lot of focus on accredited investors. And the reason being is, well, let's take a step back. I think we've mentioned this before, but anytime you're going to raise capital, then you're, that means your company's going to issue securities. If there's an issuance of securities, then those securities must either be registered, like on a public exchange, the stock market, the New York Stock Exchange, or something, the NASDAQ, or they must be exempt from registration. You're not going to have publicly traded securities. We don't do any publicly traded work. So we deal with exemptions. Your securities must have an exemption. One of the easiest exemptions to meet when you're issuing securities is to issue to accredited investors. So let's talk there for a second about what is an accredited investor? Randy, you got that definition handy? Yeah, you know, an accredited investor is an individual whose net worth is a million bucks or more, but excluding their primary residence, right? Or your income for the last two years on an individual level is at least 200 or with your spouse up to 300 and then in the year that you're investing, it's likely it will be continue to be at that same rate. And then there's a few other, those are the main two, but then there's yeah. like you're an investment professional, you're a knowledgeable employee for a venture fund or a private equity fund or executives and GPs of the actual party that's issuing right. the equity, right? Like those C-level. So on one hand, it makes sense. I mean, if you make that much money, there's a presumption that either you have the intelligence to be able to invest, but I think it's more so that you have the net, right? To be yep. able to handle some sort of a loss or something like that. And that makes sense. And I understand that our country has a vested interest in help making sure that citizens aren't all blowing their money in startups. But on the other hand, pretty strong argument, those numbers seem pretty arbitrary, right? There's a lot of really smart people who don't make $200,000 and you can get real technical on it. They make 199,000 or with their spouse, they make $299,999 mm -hmm. a year, but the government deems them not fit to make certain investments. Yep. And the problem is, is so everyone else would be an unaccredited investor. And back to that issuing securities scenario I was talking about, when you have unaccredited investors, the rules are a little different. They're a little harder, they're a little stricter. So if you're issuing securities, if you're selling your shares to accredited investors, it's pretty easy to meet the thresholds. If you're issuing them to unaccredited investors, the thresholds can be anywhere from a little bit higher to a lot higher. And when they're a lot higher, that adds time and expense and burden and legal costs. And it just makes it tougher. So there's been a lot of focus on this in the investment world. And the SEC's done some things to make this easier, but it's still a very important distinction. So when you're talking about unaccredited investors, the issue is if you want to take money from your younger brother who just graduated college and got a great job, but isn't making $200,000 a year, you're not going to subject yourself to the capital raise rules for unaccredited investors. And that could add significant time and expense to your capital raise. And that makes things difficult. So you'll see a lot of times when big investors will go to a com company, a, a venture fund will go to a company and say, hey, yeah, we want to invest a couple million bucks, but we only want you to take on accredited investors. And the guy says, the founder says, but wait, I wanted my brother to invest $10,000. The venture fund says, well, if he does that, we're not going to come in and invest in your company. So that can get kind of messy and kind of difficult. Fortunately, there's been a lot of movement around loosening the definitions for unaccredited versus accredited or making it easier to hit the threshold requirements, the offering requirements for unaccredited investors. Candidly, if you were to go by letter of the law for what you have to offer to unaccredited investors, a lot of startups don't meet that. Mm -hmm. They don't meet that at all. But the SEC is not really enforcing it, right, from what we're seeing. So 
There's and then the SEC has come out right in recent years and said things like demo days are okay, pitch competitions are okay, and those are all testing the waters, right? So those aren't actual offerings, which has kind of added a lot of without putting it well, I guess it isn't codified in a couple of places, but it's basically come out and saying you can go out and do pitch days and not run the risk of this being an actual offering. Because if you if you're gonna do a pitch day and you're off making an offering, this that's considered making an offering, and there's unaccredited investors in the audience, now you're inadvertently running a risk of violating some SEC law. So I think we're moving in the right direction there, but it can be difficult still, difficult to meet. But the other exemption that we rely on a lot, Radney, is the sophisticated investor yeah. exemption, right? Which comes from 4A2. You want to talk about that for a sec? Yeah. So the idea of accredited investor you just talked about, Kevin, right? That comes from Reg D, which is passed under 4A2 of the Securities Act and provides certain safe harbors for these types of securities offerings. So if you for example, meet the requirements of 506C, then yeah, you know your offering was legally done and all buttoned up and you have a proper exemption. But 4A2 itself is an exemption, right? As long as you comply with 4A2. And 4A2 ha- doesn't say accredited investor, right? It's just sophisticated investor, right? And that term is not defined. So you have more, I guess you have some wiggle room there as to what is defined as a sophisticated investor. Now, Typically what we do, right, is we either ourselves make a Reg D filing, right, and we comply with one of those specific exemptions, or we do what we call like a naked offering. We rely on 4A2 and we do an internal memo. Now, I will say that we usually are saying the same thing that we would under Reg D and that everyone was accredited and all of the rest. We just don't want to make the public filing and then have our client have to get hammered with emails and phone calls and all the rest and TechCrunch and everyone contacting them about this offering and like publicly displaying what it was. And we know that what they've done is complies with the law anyway, because it does technically comply with 506C and whatever other one that they did it under. But yeah, I mean, the issue here is that if you're not going to do the actual exemption under Reg D, then there is kind of like, well, did you actually comply? Because what is sophisticated? Right. And the complicating factor in 482 is it's around the offerees. The other ones we, that Red and I were talking about when you say credit and unaccredited, you're dealing with who are the actual investors. So if you're issuing only to accredited, so accredited are your only investors, and your unaccredited happened to be in the room but didn't invest, then that's okay. We talk about sophisticated investors, then under the guidelines or under the rules, you're only supposed to offer it to sophisticated investors. But then the question is, what does sophisticated mean? And it's must have knowledge or experience within the industry or the ability to make these sort of financial decisions. It's kind of silly and it'd be hard to find someone who's not sophisticated. Though the instances where I've seen, Brad, this sort of fraud in this thing have always been the really obvious cases. Like you can read about these cases that someone went to an old folks home and got people to yeah. invest who actually didn't know what they were right? Or it's some sort of a bait and switch. Invest in this company, it turns out that company is really just a shell and you're investing into something else. I think the sophisticated one is relatively, it's an easier hurdle to meet for sure than accredited. And then it makes it easier to hitch some of your exemptions. But then the problem with using 4A2 is you now have some state exemptions to worry about. Not a big deal. Your attorneys, your venture attorneys can guide you through all of that. What's important for you, the listener, to understand is that while accredited investors are ideal, if you're only going to raise money from accredited investors, that can be very difficult to find in your earliest rounds, especially if you've got family members or friends investing who might not have been doing this for a while or might not be well-established. 
they might be unaccredited or just qualify as sophisticated investors. So you need to pursue other exemptions. Visit with your attorney on that. You can find something. I'm certain of it. But Rad, let's talk about. Let's spend the last few minutes on this podcast talking about where do we find investors? Okay, so we talked about this a little bit this morning. But so you know that call you had with the client today, and you talked to the client. You said, "Look, you really got to go do it on your own." Where are you pointing them to? Where are you asking them to look? It depends, but then also my advice, honestly, is pretty similar because even when you're about to raise that two hundred fifty thousand dollars friends and family round, I still tell them start contacting all the VCs in your area now. Right? They're not going to invest, but introduce yourself, get them knowledgeable about what you're building, put them on your email list. You don't want to be reaching out to them when you need them most and they've never heard of you before. Right? You need to start developing those relationships earlier on. But where they will actually find the money is I tell them that we're in Austin and Dallas. I say, start going to Capital Factory events, reach out to some accelerators, find different startup meetups, right? And at these places, you're going to start bumping into angels. And obviously, a lot of areas have angel networks, right? Whether that's C10 here in in Austin and Central Texas or Cowtown, like up in Fort Worth, there's a bunch of different angel networks all around that you can kind of Google research and you find these and start reaching out to these angel networks, start going to these events at the accelerators, at the co-working spaces, places like that, where the angels kind of congregate and just network, network, network. It's a numbers game. Meet as many people as possible. Try to collect. I tell people, collect as many friends as you can. Make sure that you're asking for advice and sometimes you'll get money, ask for money and you're going to get advice, right? right? So you just got to be out there as a known quantity as much as you can. I think you can actually take what you said and you could put this into an actionable plan. And so here's what I would suggest. So you've raised a friends and family around, or you're trying to top that off or you're trying to get to your angel round. Brad is 100% right. Go to all the VCs in your area, find the ones that apply to you and say, hey, I'm not ready for you yet, but I want you to know who I am. FYI, here's my pitch deck. I'll keep you posted on when we raise money. I'll let you know when we close the round if we can talk about an A round. That's a great starting point. Two, angel networks. There are dozens of them in Texas. CTAN down there in Austin is the most active angel network in the country, though I think AngelList is going to claim that it's an active angel network, but AngelList is really a platform, right? So C-Town is super active. Rad's right in Dallas. You've got North Texas Angels. You've got Cowtown, Baylor Angel Network, Aggie Angel Network's really popular, Han, Houston Angel Network. They're all over the place. Lubbock Angel Network. So get on some angel network Call it like a roadshow. You can do most of these things virtually these days, but present to a couple, three, five, six angel networks, whoever will take you, who knows who you might find. That'll give you some great exposure. And then Rad said, go out, make new friends. Start showing up at every startup event in town. There will be a bunch out there. And within two or three months, if you've hit a couple angel network presentations and you've gone to some events and you've reached out to some VCs, you will have a working list of potential investors. Absolutely. It's not going to happen overnight. And I know three months might sound like a long time, but it's not. It's really not. You should plan for six to nine months for that first capital raise, that first real professional capital raise, like past your friends and family round. Um, but six to nine months, meaning you started preparing for it, right? A month or two before you wanted to do it. And that means you made a list of all the angel networks. You made a list of all the VCs. You put your pitch deck together and you sent all that stuff out and you do three months of a road show, a lot of it virtual, where you're just meeting with as many people as you can after that time, I am confident that you will have a good working list of potential investors because they're out there. You just got to hustle. Get mm-hmm. back to the hard work point that we made at the very beginning of our podcast here. Again, it's just a numbers game, right? When you're looking for that funding, just it's you just can't stress it enough. I think some people think there's some like magic bullet or 
I saw, I read how Facebook did this or that. It's like, no, it's the, don't let the, it's, it's like everything in life with news and everything else. Like we, we too often highlight the anomaly, highlight the event that doesn't occur. And then people use that as their guiding star. And it's not true. The average startup has to talk to like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people to find their initial funding. You just got to do it the same. One point I wanted to make is if you have a high growth startup, your startup's doing well, your angel round might be your hardest round. Hmm. Because once you get to institutionals, then they're easier, a little easier to find. And we can be very helpful if you're at a seed round or an A round. We have a lot of contacts. And then once you get to a seed round, if you're doing well, they will find you. You know, right? Our best startups, they said, okay, I've got three incoming term sheets. Now that's the small number. It, it still can be a slog, but just know that it could get easier. Now, what, but the other part is if it doesn't get easier, it's not going to get any harder, right? So if you're angel network, you got to really take the month to prepare and then two or three month roadshow and then three months to, to do the round. That's okay. And you'll get used to it. And hopefully your seed rounds easier, but if not, it won't, it's never going to get any harder than that. So you can feel confident about that. All right. Well, that wraps up what we wanted to talk about for our, for this office hours, preparing for funding series. This was talking about different types of investors. So in closing, remember, you can find show notes for this episode with timestamps and links to references and resources on our website at velawood.com forward slash podcasts. You can also find several other podcasts you might be interested in. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We would love it if you could subscribe and follow us and leave us a rating and review. Brad, I saw that we were trending in Nigeria. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah, I did. Pretty exciting. Really, we're just right. doing great. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's a true story. I love it. If you have any questions or comments, email us at podcast at velawood.com. That's V-E-L-A-W-O-O.com. So in closing, thanks for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye. See you guys. The Vela Wood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawood.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at